Hi, I'm Matt Bobola from Moyoc, North Carolina. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program is Richard Zoglin. His new book is Comedy at the Edge, How Stand-Up in the 1970s Changed America. It's uh, the story of how comedy went essentially from uh, uh, Bill Cosby and Bob Newhart to uh, the comedy boom of the 1980s and uh, what the various turning points and, and key figures in the intervening period were. Uh, Richard, welcome to the sound of young America. Great to be with you. So you choose as the beginning point of your book the end of Lenny Bruce. Why, why did you choose that to to start? Yeah, I, I really, after listening to a lot of Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce was someone I had listened to over the years but never thought that much of, really. He just didn't seem Yeah, you listen to, to it, it doesn't sound funny it, at all. It dates Not pretty badly. Not even a little. Yeah, but as I listened to him and talked to people about him, it just seemed like he was the pivotal figure. He was the guy, first of all, he was the stand-up comedian who showed that a stand-up comedian could be a social commentator uh, as well as a comedian, as an entertainer. He was the guy who showed the stand-up comedian could be a rebel. He was the guy who called into question all the sort of uh, moral standards of the old-fashioned, you know, 50s and era. And, and third, he was a stand-up comedian as an incredibly personal artist. I mean, he stood on stage and threw himself on stage totally. Everything he was thinking, ta- everything was happening in his life, his experiences with women, his thoughts about politics and everything. We take you now to the headquarters of Religions Incorporated. Ladies and gentlemen, nice to see so many boys here tonight. I see religious leaders I haven't seen in many years. Uh, the graph here tells a story, that's about it. Uh, for the first time in 12 years, Catholicism is up nine points. <laughs> Judaism is up 15. The big P, the Pentecostal, is starting to move finally. That was unlike really any of the other stand-up communities. Even a, a Mort Saul, who was doing, you know, very sort of brainy kind of... Uh, political satire was interesting, but he was a very more one-dimensional. Guys like Bob Newhart and Nichols and May were doing very crafted bits, but Lenny Bruce was doing this stream of consciousness stuff that was very intimate and personal and and very socially provocative. And that's what I think inspired the next generation of comics. And it just so happens that Lenny Bruce died in 1966, almost at the start of the kind of you know late 60s counterculture revolution. And so it just seemed to me the natural starting point. Who were the people who uh, picked up the baton from Lenny Bruce? Who were the people that Lenny Bruce changed? The first person was George Carlin, who was the key figure. George Carlin had actually known Lenny Bruce. Uh, Lenny Bruce helped George Carlin get his first uh, agent. When George Carlin was a young, short-haired stand-up comic doing pretty conventional kind of comedy. You actually was, have a picture of him in the book, and he just looks uh, – I mean, George Carlin, you think of him as uh, being an old long hair if you're, right. if you're my age, but looks very handsome. Yeah. But uh, he's also wearing a, a two-button sport coat with right. a two-button suit with both buttons buttoned. <laughs> yep, and, uh, and a skinny tie, yeah. short hair, slick back, very – Conventional looking, a very. He had a partner for a while, Jack Burns, 
and who went off later and became Burns and Schreiber. Uh, but, uh, you know, then he went off on his own and he was doing very, you know, good, funny, but conventional stuff, parodies of commercials and so forth. And he, he got to know a little bit Lenny Bruce because Lenny Bruce had seen him early on and helped him get an agent. And then, you know, after Lenny died and, you know, simultaneously the, the counterculture was happening, anti-Vietnam, the, the new freedoms of, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll and everything. And Carlin was sitting there looking at his career and saying, this is, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm not talking to the right audience. I'm, his, his head was with the new generation. His, his career was with the old generation. So he started to change and he grew his hair long, he grew a, grew a beard and he started talking in his old you know gigs like in Vegas and at Playboy clubs he started to talk about drugs and Vietnam and stuff and this was a real jarring thing for the old fashioned audiences so he went through a real couple years uh, of real trials and and uh, tribulations in terms <laughs> How did that happen? Like, what what was the actual process? Like, did uh, did he describe it to you as a as a like literally uh, like a, a switch flipping, or was it a, a slower thing? A slower thing. He he definitely always felt more you know in the camp of the younger people. He was friends with musicians. He was starting to he was smoking marijuana uh, and and doing other drugs and starting to get into psychedelics in the late sixties. But he, you know, he thought that what he was supposed to do for a career was, you know, these Vegas kind of gigs, and then, you know, he saw the the new generation, you know, the, the the new rock, you know, generation saying, hey, you know, we can talk about, you know, what's really happening and going on here. We don't have to fit into old molds. And he said, you know, why can't I do that? So he started. He he said to his agents and his managers, uh, I don't want to be playing Vegas anymore. I want to start doing. Uh, the coffee houses and the and the colleges and she, it's almost like starting over his career and there was no precedent for this I mean a guy who had a basically a very successful career in mainstream showbiz basically throwing it away and saying I want to start over and talk to a different audience they didn't know how to handle this so uh, it was you know kind of a new road that he was he was hoeing the businessmen are the ones that really like kind of got the country where it is in both ways in the positive and the negative man they did, the businessman. Because there's no morality in business. Just the ledger. Keep it in the black. Show a profit. Keep it in the black. Keep it in the black. Never mind your soul. Never mind the landscape. Never mind the other guy. Keep it in the black. Keep it in the black. Do what you can. Keep it in the black. Business as usual going on. Big plywood up there. Business as usual. Businessman did it. That's right. You can buy anything in this country, man. Anything you can think of. You can probably buy a left nostril inhaler if you look around long enough. With your state motto on it. The parallel artist who uh, was a contemporary of Carlin's, uh, more or less, who made a very similar transition, uh, is Richard Pryor. Yeah. Tell me about how his transition came about. Well, Pryor, was, it was very parallel to uh, Carlin. They both were getting started in the Greenwich Village in New York in the early 60s, 62, 63, 64. Uh, they were playing the same folk clubs. But they were both, you know, young kids who were basically trying to play the straight you know, game. Uh, Pryor got got picked up very early by the Merv Griffin Show, and he was a very popular attraction on the Merv Griffin Show. Uh, a young, fresh-faced black kid who did pantomime bits, very phys- physical humor, funny, wholesome. Uh, Merv loved him, uh, and then you know he too started as he got more successful, uh, and he 
you know, we moved out to L.A. and he started to, you know, get friendly and, and see what was happening in, in you know, the, the culture. And he was friendly with, uh, you know, African-American uh, activists and so forth. And he started to, you know, just rebel against what he was doing. So he, too, was in Vegas. And one time he uh, actually had almost a breakdown in Vegas and walked off stage. Basically, I can't do this shit anymore, you know. And then uh, he uh, began changing his uh, his material and starting to talk more directly about the black experience and growing up as a, ke- a kid in the ghetto in Peoria. And, uh, uh, you know, his material changed totally. And by 1970, he actually took a year or about a half a year off in Berkeley. He sort of dropped out. He had started to do movies. He was very successful in mainstream showbiz. But uh, he sort of dropped out, went to Berkeley, kind of uh, uh, started just developing his other kind of material. He came back to L.A., Started in 1970, 71, playing Red Fox's club in, in L.A., uh, doing very hard-edged black material about, you know, uh, the stuff that we know him for now. And that and at first it was difficult. His audience was primarily African-American. And then after a few years, he uh, he crossed over with a with a with an album called That Nigger's Crazy. And that and then, uh, you know. That was the, the Richard Pryor, the sort of mature Richard Pryor. White folks do things a lot different than niggas. They eat quiet and shit. You be on out of it. Pass the potatoes. Thank you, darling. Could I have a bit of that sauce? How are the kids coming along with their studies? Think we'll be having sexual intercourse this evening? We're not. Well, what the heck? Black families be different, have more rhythm shit. My father, when we ate, it was fun because he made noise and shit. Hey, bitch, where the food? Goddamn, mama, come on. Shit. Oh, you motherfucker, you shit. Oh, goddamn it. Shit, pass shit, nigga, kiss my ass. Better get that meat down that bone, motherfucker. How did these artists, uh, sort of walking out on a limb and, um, uh, kind of cashing in the success that they had already had to become this whole new other thing. How did that transform from just a couple of guys doing something crazy into uh, a, basically a, a new form of stand-up comedy? Well, uh, I think the younger comics looked at guys like Carlin and Pryor and Robert Klein, who was sort of the third guy who came along in the late 60s and was kind of a long hair, you know, longish hair, hip guy, college-educated talking about the things that the younger generation was talking about. And they, uh, I think then this younger generation, the, the younger uh, stand-up comics were, who had grown up with the Ed Sullivan type of, you know, the Alan Kings of the world, saw these new guys talking, really talking to them, talking to their generation. And, and they realized that, wow, being a stand-up comic can be, you can really say things, you can talk about what's happening. And so at the same time, there were these clubs opening up in New York, uh, you know, showcase clubs for stand-up comics, The Improv and Catch a Rising Star. And suddenly there was a place for these guys to develop. So a whole generation started to develop working on their stand-up comedy, inspired by Carlin Pryor and Klein, and, um, and, and really developed a whole sort of school of, of, of stand-up comedy and, and really – created the form of stand-up comedy that we know today. I want to talk about the way that stand-up comedy developed uh, uh, scenes in communities, which is one of the one of the big uh, topics in your book in just a second. But let's talk for a second about Robert Klein first. Um, he, he's a guy who 
uh, if uh, 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 people today look back at the history of that era, they don't see him in the same way that your book presents him as a, a peer of uh, Carlin and Pryor. Why, why do you think he is important, and why do you think he's been uh, relative? I mean, certainly broadly respected as a uh, one of the all-time greats of comedy. But why do you think he's been left off of the very short list? Yeah. Well, he wasn't quite the innovator or quite as radical as as Carlin or Pryor. He did, but he was the most relatable of the of the younger generation, the newer stand-up comics that came after Lenny Bruce. He was the guy that the younger people looked at and said, wow, that's a guy who's talking to me. Remember the first time you smoked pot and you thought you had a neon sign that said, Stone, 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 this man, Stone, this man, Stone, please, Stone, this man, Stone, please, Stone. Klein also, not only did he talk about all the subjects that the younger generation was thinking and talking about, I mean, po- from politics to old commercials and TV he grew up on. Uh, he was the first guy to really do the kind of 50s nostalgia bits. I mean, talking about uh, everything from civil defense drills in school to uh, watching old our gang comedies on TV. So it was stuff that really, you know, the younger people could relate to. But also Klein developed a style, and this is what, you know, is sort of overlooked. And, and it's really, people don't realize how influential he was. He wasn't telling. He wasn't telling jokes. He he wasn't doing act. He wasn't acting out sketches. He was doing an odd combination of both. He did. He developed this fast-paced stream of consciousness style that combined jokes with you know lines, gag lines with with improv and and impressions and little scenes and bits. And he just it was just a really fast-paced, free-flowing style that that. That every younger comic, I think many of the younger comics model themselves after. And to this day, if you talk to like a Jay Leno or a Jerry Seinfeld or Richard Lewis, I mean, they will say Robert Klein is the guy I was trying to be. I was copying. So he was very influential. Funny thing happened the other night before the Nick game. The national anthem record didn't work in Chicago or something. Sent everybody into a panic. What can we do? Do we forfeit the game? What do we do? We can't start the... They didn't play it. It broke. And the national anthem, is it 2 nothing in the favor of the home team? We can't start the show. They can't put a game without the national... We have a national anthem fetish in the United States. When I go to Madison Square Garden to see the Knicks play, I didn't forget what country I'm in. Where are we, Bill? Belgium? Oh, say. Oh, thank you very much. It's We're in America, I forgot. You mentioned uh, the comedy-specific clubs that started to open in New York in the 1970s. Um, Tell me about what the difference was for the comedy world between uh, playing Catch a Rising Star or being part of the Catch a Rising Star world uh, relative to, say, you know, going from uh, folk music club to folk music club or, you know, getting on TV and then playing in, uh, I don't know, broken down vaudeville theaters or something yeah. like that. Well, yeah, before there just weren't clubs that were dedicated to comedy. Uh, if, if In the early 60s, if you wanted to do stand-up comedy, you had to fight for a little time in, at the folk clubs in Greenwich Village where music was the primary thing. And every once in a while, they'd have a stand-up comedian as an opening act or something. But what happened with the improv and Catch a Rising Star, they actually started out to be 
clubs for both music and comedy, but very quickly comedians sort of dominated the place. And they were showcase clubs. They did not pay their people. It was, it was a place where you were supposed to come and just work on your stuff, try out new material with an audience that was kind of a showbizy kind of audience, insiders. They were originally conceived of as kind of showbiz hangouts. Um, and so it was a place where you could go night after night and, and just feel much freer about sort of just experimenting, trying out new stuff, bombing if you had to, and it wasn't a, you know, wouldn't kill your whole, your whole career. Uh, and so this was a place that guys could develop night after night after night. And so they really were able to develop the art form. And they also developed a camaraderie, a kind of group a sense of feeling, a sense of mission, I think, about we're, we're changing the art form here. We're, we're moving it forward. And then it allowed people who were really experimental, like Andy Kaufman, to start, you know, working out in clubs like that and doing their weird bits that, that you know, in another era would have had no place. But here it was okay because you could put them on at 11:30 at night, and if it didn't work, you know, the audience didn't was mystified. That was okay. So uh, it, it allowed a lot more experimentation. It's the sound of Young America. My guest is Richard Zoglin. His book is called Comedy at the Edge. We'll have more with Richard in just a minute when we return. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you live in Los Angeles, come join intern Chris and me at The Sound of Young America's first volunteer day, Sunday, June 22nd. There will be refreshments, t-shirts, and lots and lots of paper cuts. If you want to come help out, email Chris at chris at maximumfun.org. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my conversation with Richard Zoglin, the author of the book Comedy at the Edge. I, I think a lot of people, when they think about revolutionary comedy or something like that, uh, tend to think about political commentary or uh, social commentary. I mean, certainly like uh, the way that, uh, you know, Mort Saul talked about politics or Lenny Bruce talked about social conditions or, uh, you know, the way that uh, Carlin often talked about social constructs and, and why they exist. But the other sort of stream of uh, of comedy that came out of the 1970s was something completely different. You know, there's Andy Kaufman, Steve Martin, Albert Brooks, right. comedians who were doing something absolutely, yeah. they couldn't be more different from that. Right. Uh, yeah, definitely stand-up took a turn uh, with those guys, particularly starting with Albert Brooks in the very early 70s, and then Steve Martin. And these were guys that were not talking about political social issues they weren't talking about what was happening in in the news they were uh, they were doing commentary on show business they were doing bad bits they were they were getting up there and making fun of themselves they were they, i'm so bad i'm funny uh brooks did a series of classic bits you know the bad mime the bad uh, ventriloquist uh the you know just crazy showbiz acts and they were very deadpan and the idea was that you had to be hip enough to realize that he was making fun of of show business. He was making fun of himself, and he was he was satirizing the whole idea of being a stand up comedian. And that's that's what uh, you know Steve Martin in a in a kind of very different way, but you know carried that on 
too. So, something I didn't realize about Brooks in until reading about it in your book was the extent to which he basically grew up as a Hollywood insider. I mean, yeah. the fact that he was, you know, close buddies with Rob Reiner, of course, whose father was Carl Reiner, by then already a comedy god. Right. Um, and, you know, Rob Reiner went on to do pretty well in the world of comedy himself. Right. Um, what do you think, how do you think his, how do you think his perspective was shaped by that, uh, by that part of his upbringing? Well, I think he was totally a child of show business. He was a very smart kid and he he was a real prodigy. In fact, you know, he had a famous, uh, he he did bits when he was a teenager that, that cracked up Carl Reiner, you know, so much that he, when he went on, Carl Reiner was a guest on the Tonight Show. And when Johnny Carson asked him who the funniest person he knew was, he said, this 17-year-old friend of my son's named Albert, <laughs> Albert Einstein was his name at that time. Uh, his father was, uh, was Harry Einstein, who was a uh, vaudeville guy uh, in, in movies in vaudeville named Par- Parkia Carcass was his stage name. So Albert grew up in show business. And I just, you know, that was his, his perspective on the world. And so when he started to do comedy, it was all commentary on show business. And, you know, it was a kind of very circumscribed little world. But uh, he also created an amazing character I mean, himself. He, he would go on The Tonight Show and do and talk about things and, and you know, wasn't just doing bits. Uh, and he was a brilliant, brilliant performer and, and, and an ad-lib performer like without peer and known to all his Hollywood friends as maybe the, the one genius uh, produced in that era in comedy. It's interesting. I mean, I, I watched just a couple months ago, I watched um, uh, the one of the movies he made, Modern Life, which was one of his first movies, maybe even his... Modern li- Romance. Uh, real life or modern real life that's what i meant to say real life real life which is a fictional film about basically about the topic i would say that it was reality television if reality television had existed at the time and we were talking just before we went on the air about his uh his album comedy minus one which contains an extended bit in in which basically is a complicated parody of those act along with your idols right records he he played uh, he said you too can be a comedian uh, I and he gave a script with with the uh, record <laughs> he did a comedy it was a comedy duo bit where uh, it and he he played one half of it and you played the other you played the straight man or actually I think you played the the uh, he played the straight man and you played the funny guy. Anyway, but you filled in the lines as he read them. He read them on the record and you filled them in uh, uh, yourself from the script. So everything was a kind of parody, sort of a you know, satire of show business and, and comedy. Please open the album up so you have your script in front of you. People listening to this on 8-track tape or cassette, if you try and open the album up, you're going to rip that little picture right off. You should have gotten a script with your purchase. If you didn't, You can contact the company that manufactures the tape, and they will send you one. I'm sorry if there's any inconvenience involved, but I really have nothing to do with this and will take no responsibility for it. Steve Martin uh, became the monstrous comedy super success of the 1970s, maybe still the most successful stand-up comedian, at least the highest peak of any comedian ever. With his act, which was um, like Albert Brooks's act, uh, very high concept, but um, unlike Albert Brooks's act, was just driven by silliness. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, you know, it, it's I felt they were doing the same thing, but from in such different ways. Uh, Steve Martin had kind of grown up at Disneyland, and he kind of soaked up that whole mainstream Americana entertainment, you know, 
animal balloons and uh, you know arrow through his head and all that kind of stuff, juggling magic tricks. He he learned them all at Disneyland, and then he took them. He turned them into comedy. Uh, you know by by pretending to be the worst entertainer in the world here. I you know and a guy who just was so brash and and unaware how foolish he looked. Uh, it was but. Whereas Brooks was very dry and deadpan, and it sort of took a little while for the joke to kind of emerge, uh, Martin you could laugh at from the very beginning because he was just so silly. Could I have some more uh, club soda, please? <laughs> That's all it is, club soda. I'm not into the uh, drug scene or the booze scene or the dope scene. I'm not into that. And I think people who are should be taken out and maimed. <laughs> he, he also, uh, in his stand-up, he, would, he was doing early street theater. Uh, when he would do co- uh, clubs and small uh, co- college concerts and stuff in his early years, he would, after the show was over, he would take the audience out into the street and maybe just do, do pranks, like, you know, have hail a cab, have everybody hide behind a bush and hail a cab and have 300 people come out and try to get in the cab. Uh, it, it was amazing stuff. He was really experimenting. Do you think that, um, do you think, to what extent do you think his comedy was accepted on those terms at the time? I mean, one of the people who talks about his comedy in your book is Harry Shearer, who had worked with Albert Brooks uh uh, on making some of Albert Brooks's albums. Um, and Harry Shearer basically says, I'm obviously I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it written down in front of me. He thought it was just, at the time, he thought it was basically the dumb version of Albert Brooks. Yeah, yeah. They, it, I think the, the Albert Brooks partisans saw Steve Martin as just doing a, a much more crowd-pleasing version. I mean, he said, yes, uh, I'm. he's making fun of a guy who uh, who puts arrows through his head and, and, and everything. But in the end... He's putting an arrow through his head. He's getting laughs from that. But it, it was it, it was crowd-pleasing, but he knew uh, – I don't think there was anybody who was as good at, at just getting laughs. I mean, just knowing how to get laughs. His, his timing, his the intonations, the over-the-topness of his act, uh, Steve Martin was just just – incredible at getting at getting an audience going and the the kind of reception he got he became a, a you know a rock star and and he was he was just as you know besieged by fans as as the big rock stars of the era you know a lot of people come to me and they say steve how can you be so fucking funny <laughs> uh, there's a secret to it there's no big deal i'll be honest with you uh before i come out i put a slice of bologna in each one of my shoes so when I'm on stage, I feel funny. In this story of, of these comedians shooting to prominence in the 1970s, who do you think are the most important characters uh, who aren't famous, who aren't comedians? Well, of course, two behind the scenes, two or three behind the scenes characters are the people who ran the clubs. Uh, Bud Friedman started the improv. Uh, Rick Newman at Catch a Rising Star and in Los Angeles, Mitzi Shore at the Comedy Store. Each of them interesting characters in their own rights, but they they were people who, you know, thought of a new way of presenting comedy and discovered a lot of these people, gave them stage time and they deserve a lot of credit. And, you know, some of them, Mitzi Shore particularly was quite a controversial figure and the comedians went on strike against her in 1979 uh, in order to get paid because they still weren't getting paid. But, um, you know, they deserve a lot of credit for, uh, you know, really creating a place where the stand-up, this kind of stand-up comedy could flower. 
The 1970s uh, weren't a particularly good time for women in comedy. I mean, it's been it's a tough road to hoe for uh, women in comedy, generally speaking. But certainly the 1970s, you write a little bit about Elaine Boozler, who is actually the only one of the major figures in your book who you weren't actually able to successfully get that's, to do an interview. That's true. What do you think? What do you think was uh, going on generally for for women at the time, and, and what do you think might have happened to lead uh, a major figure like uh, like Boozler to just not want to be involved in this kind of thing? Well, it was an odd thing. I, the, uh, women were never, you know, it was always tough for women in stand-up. But a few years, you know, the years before my era, uh, the Phyllis Dillers and Joan Rivers, you know, became very big, as certainly as big as some of the top men. Joan Rivers came along just before the start of my era. She kind of hit it big in 64, 65. Uh, and, and she was still around, of course, but she very quickly seemed old fashioned because she was talking about getting a man and making fun of her looks and all that. Then, you know, the women's movement happened. And in the early, the late sixties, early seventies, women thought we cannot do material like that anymore. And they weren't quite sure what to do. Uh, and I think there was just a, a kind of a lag period before they figured out where women's, what women's comedy could be. Now they there were people like Elaine Boozler and others who were doing the clubs. But the other thing they were faced uh, with was an industry that I still think was not quite ready for them. Still, it was little, they were a little uncomfortable. Uh, they were comfortable with a Joan Rivers or Phyllis Diller making fun of herself, but a woman assertively getting on stage and talking about dating and stuff in the way men were, that made a lot of men uh, in the industry uncomfortable, particularly made Johnny Carson uncomfortable. He even said so in an interview that just assertive women comics, just, you know, just doesn't know if, he, if they worked as, as, as comedians. People always ask me what my parents think about me being a comedian. Uh, they said I could do anything I wanted as long as it wasn't being a Playboy centerfold. So, You ever read that magazine? Real subtle, huh? See those poses? How could anybody do that while their parents are still alive? <laughs> I was in there, I could see my mother's reaction. Oh no, you wouldn't even take a graduation picture. <laughs> see, I think Playboy's funny, they're silly. They never want you to think the pictures are posed, right? We just happened to catch Kathy typing, nude on top of a Volvo in a field this morning. <laughs> People like Elaine Boozer, who was probably the most successful club comic of the 70s, women comic of the 70s, uh, never really was accepted on The Tonight Show. She only had one appearance with Johnny Carson and then he didn't have her back uh, and and didn't really have as big a career as any of the men who she she came up with, Richard Lewis and, and Andy Kaufman and, you know, guys like that went and got much bigger than she did. So uh, it took until the 80s, uh, another decade, uh, when people like Roseanne Barr and Ellen DeGeneres and, uh, came along to, for women women who became as big as the men, as their men uh, peers. But, so the 70s was to me kind of a black hole. Now why, <laughs> Elaine, poor Elaine Boozler, I, I think she's very frustrated with what her, her happened with her career. It, it never really took off. She was very, uh, in the mid 70s, she was discovered, called the, you know, the hottest woman comic in New York. And uh, the, her career didn't quite take off. Some people thought she was difficult to work with. Uh, uh, and she just, I don't know. She didn't want to talk for the book, and you know there were everybody else did. So I don't know. You um, even, in fact, you talked to uh, David Letterman, who's somebody who's famous for not doing right. interviews, basically under any circumstances. I mean, he's yeah, you know, he does maybe one every other year. That's that's right. He he was the toughest 
uh, I basically got into everybody, uh, all the major figures, and uh, Dave was the last one who didn't want to talk, and I've dealt with him over the years uh, uh, at, at Time Magazine. Um, I once wrote a cover story on him, but that didn't cut any ice with him because he was <laughs> he stopped talking to the press. And so I tried several times uh, through publicists, through uh, producers who work with him, and the answer was no. And then finally, near the end, he, he came around and he and uh, through uh, through an intermediary came and said he would like to talk. Uh, and I sat with him for uh, quite a while, an hour and a half or you know or, or more. And he said, you know, I just I, I I kind of don't like talking anymore. I don't feel I have to anymore uh, to the press unless you know I absolutely need to. Uh, but you know, I've heard about your book, and I've been thinking about it. And those uh, those days meant a lot to me. And I just feel uh, like I kind of would like to go on record and talk about them. So it was a really nice conversation. It's interesting in the the book, as much as it is a chronicle of an era, it's also uh, uh, the story of how the building blocks came to be laid for the comedy explosion of the 1980s. I mean, you write a lot about. Uh, uh, Jay Leno in the book, a comic who was, um, you know, came up in the late 1970s and exploded in the 1980s. Or mm-hmm. uh, Jerry Seinfeld, another comic who, who got a sort of a similar right. career path. What, what do you see as being different about things in, you know, 1984 than 1976? Well, what really happened, you know, the clubs started to get very big in the 70s. They were very popular. And, and then you know, comedians, people started to notice stand-up comedians and they started to get become stars of sitcoms. Uh, Freddie Prinze and Gabe Kaplan in the 70s. Uh, and then the, the club scene just became very hot in New York and L.A. And suddenly around the country, every city started to, uh, you know, open up their own comedy clubs. And suddenly you had a circuit. You had, you know, guys who were not even top names, uh, you know, middle-level guys could start traveling around and make pretty good money traveling around and doing these clubs. So suddenly you had a career for guys who, you know, guy who maybe thought he was selling insurance and he thought, gee, maybe I'd like to try stand-up. And suddenly you had an influx of a lot of people doing stand-up and a lot of, you know, m- middle-level people actually able to make a living at it. So that led to the comedy club boom of the, of the 80s when every city there were, you know, a total of maybe 300 or so clubs around the country uh, and then you had TV shows, Live at the Improv, uh, Evening at the Improv, and you, there was just so much stand-up comedy out there uh, uh, to where it became a glut, and then of course uh, it kind of crashed. And that you know, in the late late eighties, it's the the club started to close down. There's a, a period when comics start to move really uh, with alacrity from. Uh, stand-up comedy being is feeling like an end in and of itself to stand-up comedy being a vehicle towards other things. I mean, uh, Robin Williams having really extraordinary success relatively early in his early in his career with Mork and Mindy that very much changed the tra- trajectory of his career on on stage as well as on screen, and um, eventually leading to uh, you know the Cosby Show in the early 1980s, basically just exploding. Right. right. Yeah, it, all stand-up comedians, even George Carlin, kind of wanted to be in movies. Uh, you know, when he started out, they. Uh, but but those guys and and Richard Pryor went off certainly and did movies. But those guys had a real commitment to stand-up as an art form. They really developed it. Uh, then when when the Cosby Show hit in '84, 
um, that was a, 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 a Unlike some of the earlier guys who had gotten who had gotten sitcoms like Gabe Kaplan or Freddie, Freddie Prinze, that was they just they took roles in sitcoms. Uh, this was a sitcom that was built around a stand-up comedian's whole persona, Joe, Bill Cosby's show. Huge hit. I mean, a bigger hit than almost anything in TV history. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, you know, the, the networks discovered they, they started looking around for other standups that they could build sitcoms around. The sitcom then w- was in a in a real, you know, in a boom period. So people like Roseanne and uh, uh, Brett Butler and you know every, everybody seemed to get their own sitcom. Uh, later, Ray Romano and so forth. And then I think when people, when the stand-up comedians saw this happening, they started to view their stand-up a little differently. They really saw that the, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow was that sitcom deal, and they just wanted to develop enough material so they could get a couple of Tonight Show shots, uh, get discovered by a, a, a producer or a talent scout, and uh, and get their get their sitcom. So I think it did change the attitude towards stand-up comedy, and I don't think there was as much commitment to stand up as an art form in starting in the in the 80s. Let me ask you this question. The, the subtitle of of your book is how stand up in the 1970s changed America. Um, how did stand up comedy in the 1970s change America? What was the what was the net result of all of this? Well, I think my argument is that in in the late 60s we went through a cultural upheaval in this country. There was the whole counterculture revolution. Uh, and you know the whole culture changed, and you know we certainly the arts play a role in that. And we've ta- people are always talking about how rock music and and some of the movies of the era, the the you know the independent film movement, an easy uh, rider, the easy riders of of that period. Um, I don't think anybody ever paid attention to stand up comedy, and these guys were talking about all the things, all the changing attitudes was was what they were talking about. I mean. The suspicion of authority, anti-government, anti uh, the calling into question the old-fashioned values of your parents' generation, the new freedoms of uh, sex and drugs and you know and speech—all those were things that these were attitudes that stand-up comedians were were talking about, and they became so popular. And I, you know, would say they helped move the country, moved our attitudes forward. Um, and in just you know one example, Richard Pryor was talking about race in a way that you know hardly anybody else was talking about to to a crossover audience. I mean, there were comedians before who had talked about race. I mean, Dick Gregory did jokes about the civil rights movement, um, and Bill Cosby, you know, w- was was a very race neutral. He just did you know comedy that, that that said, hey, blacks and whites are all alike. We we worry about the same things, our kids and so forth. But Pryor was a, an African-American – he talked about that experience growing up as a kid in the Peoria ghetto, and he created the characters and the scenes, and it was very specific to his background. But it was so you know, human and, and engaging and, and you know, vivid that it, it showed everybody – it just seemed like universal – and so I think I would argue that Richard Pryor did as much to sort of educate white America about the black experience as anybody else, as any writers or political leaders at the time. So I think that's in, in some of the ways they helped change America. Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was a pleasure to have you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Richard Zoglin's book is Comedy at the Edge, How Stand-Up in the 1970s Changed America.
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. A special help this week from editor Nick White in Chicago. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our intern's name is... Chris! Good one, Chris. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and you can email me directly at jesse at MaximumFun.org. That's J-E-S-S-E at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.